Hello and welcome to this episode of The Politics of Living. I'm your host, Vicki Mazzone. This program takes a look at the politics and all that we experience in life. On today's show, more conversations with Rochelle Schmid and her media colleagues around the subject of toxic masculinity. M.L. Laurie takes a look at the false belief that we are alone in our human condition. But first, it's the second in a two-part installment by contributor Kristen Thiel on the She-Ra Solution. Last month, Kristen interviewed author and historian Quincy D. Newell on her latest book entitled Your Sister in the Gospel, The Life of Jane Manning James, a 19th Century Black Mormon. We heard the first part of that interview in June. This is the second part of the interview. Here's Kristen Thiel. You are an associate professor of religious studies at Hamilton College in New York State. Your research focus has been the experiences of religious and racial or ethnic minorities in the Western United States. I'd love to hear more on your experiences doing this type of work. Uh, For example, Obviously, your manuscript on Jane has found a prestigious publishing home, but was it a long process to get to that point? What responses did you get when you told publishers or agents, hey, I'm writing about an African-American woman who was a servant and a Mormon in the 1800s? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I proposed this book to Oxford at a time when Oxford University Press was moving into Mormon studies in a big way. I knew that they were really interested in Mormon studies. So I sent the proposal to them first because I thought they'd be, they would find, I would find a good home for the book there. Um, And they were very enthusiastic about it. I think I get a little bit more pushback sometimes from folks who are less, acquainted with the history of Mormonism, because the the initial reaction for a lot of people is, wait, there were Black Mormons in the 1800s? What? Like, what does that even mean? We think of Mormonism, of the LDS church, as such a white church that it's a little disorienting, I think, for folks to, to learn that there have been Mormons of color from the very beginning of the church, not just African Americans, but also Native Americans. Um, who, for one reason or another, found the LDS Church to be a compelling element of their identity. Have you done uh, work on Native Americans in the church? Some, not as much as I intend to. Um, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I got started on this project in large part because when I was in graduate school. I was taking a course on Native American history, and one of my professors just sort of offhandedly mentioned, oh, you know, the Catawbas all converted to Mormonism in the 1880s. And I, I sort of said, Wait, they what now? Um, you know, I had that same kind of reaction. Um, yeah. And so I, I sort of filed that away and came back to it after um, getting my first book sort of squared away and um, started working on a book that I'm tentatively calling Marginal Mormons about the experiences of 19th century African-American and Native American Mormons to think about sort of what does it mean to be a person of color in a church that is working so hard to be white. Um, African-Americans and Native Americans held really different cosmological positions. African-Americans were thought to be descendants of Cain, 
the biblical first murderer. Um, and so they were thought to be cursed, whereas Native Americans mm -hmm. were thought by Mormons to be the ancestors of, um, sorry, not the ancestors, the descendants of Israelites. Um, and it was mm -hmm. thought that the authors of the Book of Mormon um, were in fact the ancestors of the present day Native Americans. Um, mm. So for Mormons, for Latter-day Saints, the idea was that you had to uh, bring Native Americans into the church because that was where they belonged. They, in fact, were supposed to be in charge of God's restored church. And so the first missionaries that Mormons sent out were actually to Native American tribes. Um, they were wildly unsuccessful, but eventually they did get some Native American people to convert. Sometimes as a one-off, it was, you know, a single individual here or there, but sometimes entire tribes like the Catawbas were baptized en masse. So I, I think that's a really, really interesting story, and I want to think about sort of the experiences, the religious experiences of people who decided that they wanted to be a part of the LDS church in this interesting sort of role um, as a person of color during the 19th century. That's the book that I was working on when Jane just kept popping up and threatening <laughs> to take over my research. And so finally I, I gave in to the distraction and wrote her biography. I made a deal with her, I, I joke, um, that I made a deal with her that uh, I would write her biography if she would leave me alone. So we'll see if she holds up her end of the deal. We have more information on Jane than we might expect to have, considering her place in society and the era that she lived in. Still, we don't have a lot of details. You seem to rely on your expertise in general matters of religion and race and gender of that era to fill in gaps in Jane's experience. Can you talk about what that was like to help craft another person's, another woman's life story in this way? concerns, pitfalls, opportunities? Sure. Um, I think this is a really common issue that people working on Native American history and African American history face on a very regular basis. Um, we don't have a lot of documentary evidence. When we do have documentary evidence, it is often written by um, outsiders, usually white men um, or other people who we don't really trust to reflect the experience of our subjects in a faithful kind of way. Um, this is sort of the kind of project that I tend to take on. Um, I, I don't know why I have chosen to torture myself in this particular way, but I seem to take on <laughs> projects where my evidence comes in the form of a sentence here, a fragment there, you know, a little bit of a photograph over uh, on that other page. Um, and so I spend a lot of time trying to weave together this sort of fragmentary evidence and make it into a picture that kind of makes sense, um, both to me and to my readers. Um, there's a historian named uh, John Sensbach who referred to this kind of evidence once as documentary shrapnel. And I think that's a really great uh, phrase for the kind of evidence that I usually deal with. Um, and what that ends up meaning is that you have to be creative about both about what counts as evidence, 
um, but also about how you use that evidence um, in terms of sort of thinking about how to fill in those gaps. Um, I end up proposing um, various kinds of um, interpretations um, that, that might fill in holes in this book. So, so for example, I, I mentioned earlier that Jane says in one account of her life that she and her family got left at Buffalo um, and had to walk from Buffalo to Nauvoo. And in another account, she says that they got left at Akron and had to walk from Akron to Nauvoo. And another set of evidence suggests that they got left at Cleveland and had to walk from Cleveland to Nauvoo. Well, if they got left at Buffalo, they could have gone the northern route around Lake Erie, or they could have gone the southern route. Um, and so I explore both of those options. There's evidence for both of them. Um, I think the southern route is probably more persuasive, and I say so in the book. Um, but I want to kind of lay out all of the options and let the reader make their own determination in a certain sense even though I have some ideas and I'm going to say out loud, you know, I think this is more persuasive than that one and here's why. Um, so in that sense, um, I, I think it's important to not let these stories go untold just because we don't have what might count as enough evidence. Um, we have to fill in those gaps we can find various kinds of information and then we use our imaginations to kind of fill in the gaps that are left. Um, I think for women's history that's particularly important because women are so often invisible in the documentary record especially you know um, in American history. Um, so we have to imagine our way into women's spaces and women's work and women's lives. Um, so one of the moments that I'm particularly proud of in this book um, is a, a discussion of a Christmas party that the Smiths threw um, in 1843. Um, Jane was working for them as a servant. And this is in, for Latter-day Saints, this is a really famous Christmas party um, because uh, Joseph and Emma Smith invited 50 couples um, to their home to celebrate Christmas. There was music, there was dancing, there was dinner. Um, and a guy named Oren Porter Rockwell had just gotten out of jail in Missouri and had walked for 12 days from Missouri to Nauvoo. Um, and he stumbles into this party and he's pretending to be a drunken Missourian who is an enemy of the Mormons. But in fact, he's a trusted, beloved uh, friend of Joseph Smith. And so <laughs> Joseph Smith gets in, in a fight with Oren Porter Rockwell, but then he recognizes him and welcomes him in a sort of prodigal son-ish. It's, it's very, um, a, it's a happy story. Um, what, what nobody ever talks about is all of the work that went into putting that party together. Um, invitations had to be sent out. Joseph and Emma were wearing their finest clothes, so the clothes had to be washed and pressed. Um, table linens and silverware and all the food had to be prepared. Tables had to be set. Um, and Jane would have been 
at the center of all of that work. She did the laundry for the Smith family. So she was responsible for making sure that Joseph's uniform and Emma's dress were ready to go. She was responsible for making sure that the table linens were ready to go. She almost certainly helped with the cooking and the serving of the food and probably the cleaning up afterwards. Um, and being able to just being able to realize that she was there and she was responsible for helping the Smiths be the um, hospitable community hosts that they wanted to be, the leaders that they wanted to be, um, I think was really important for me in thinking about her role in the community. You close the book's introduction with this invitation to readers. I invite you to bring your analyses of these sources to the conversation about Jane and histories in which she participated. What does it mean to invite readers to participate in this way? Are you changing notions of how we, quote, do history? Maybe, yeah. I um, insisted to the publisher that I really wanted to include some of the primary sources from Jane's life in this book. So the appendix to the book includes her autobiography. It includes an account that she gave in an interview of her life um, in 1905. And it includes an 1899 account of a conversation with her in which she sort of told her life history. It also includes uh, the two patriarchal blessings that she received. And those were really important documents for Latter-day Saints. Um, they were they were personal, but they sort of channeled the the voice of God um, to each individual. And Jane received a patriarchal blessing from Joseph Smith's brother Hiram Smith, and one from his I believe nephew John Smith. Um, both of them were patriarchs of the church at different times, so they were really important documents for her. Um, and we know that she meditated on those words. Um, for decades. Um, so I wanted to include those primary sources so that readers had access to some of the raw materials that really informed my telling of Jane's life. Um, and in part, that's because of, I think, the provisional nature of the ways we write this kind of history. Um, my interpretation of this evidence is not the only one out there, and it, it shouldn't be the only one out there. Um, so I wanted to make it available, I wanted to make it an option for readers to come up with their own interpretation and to, to sort of judge whether they thought my interpretation was adequate. Um, so that's why I included those sources, um, and I tried to make it really explicit that I wanted folks to enter into that conversation um, and to think about um, how they would interpret those sources and um, what those sources meant. Finally, we of course didn't talk about so much that you cover in the book, Jane's marriages, her children, her community work. Are there any details, stories, any points about all of that that you'd like to share? Um, you know, one of the things that we didn't touch on really is uh, Jane's charismatic experiences. I mentioned a little bit, she, she experienced faith healings. She also spoke in tongues. Um, she had visions. So she had this really 
interestingly charismatic experience of Mormonism that was actually quite typical for early Mormons. Um, but as time went on, she continued doing that. She was speaking in tongues in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, and fewer and fewer Mormons were doing that kind of uh, charismatic experience of the divine. Um, and that's one of the things that I thought was so interesting about her when I first read her autobiography was this sort of insistence on the fact that she experienced God directly um, in ways that Mormons today don't tend to do. Um, Mormons uh, nowadays um, talk about uh, communing with the divine in prayer, for sure. They um, talk to God and they expect to receive answers from God. Um, but they don't tend to do things like speak in tongues, for example, or heal people by faith. And Jane talks about um, both healing other people and healing herself and experiencing faith healing throughout her life, which I just think is such an interesting aspect of her religious experience. I'm so glad you brought that up because, yes, I think my jaw just about hit the page when I was reading that. Like, wow, I had no idea that was a fascinating. Uh, point to read. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This is great. Uh, again, your book is called Your Sister in the Gospel, The Life of Jane Manning James, a 19th century Black Mormon. It's available for purchase now. Are there any other ways that listeners can connect with you or Jane? Are you going on tour? Are you on social media? When's your next book coming out? Sorry, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the next book is going to be several years from now, I think. Um, okay. And I'm, well, it sounds so interesting. Well, thank you. Um, I'll be glad to come back and talk with you about that one. I'm not really on social media, um, but Oxford University Press is. I know they tweet at, at OUP Religion. And I'm hoping to be out in Portland maybe in October to talk about Jane. So stay tuned. That was Kristen Thiel with the She-Raw Solution. You just heard part two of the interview with author Quincy D. Newell, her latest book entitled Our Sister in the Gospel, The Life of Jane Manning James, a 19th century black Mormon, is published by Oxford University Press. Part one of the interview was aired on the June 2019 episode. To listen to the first part of this interview, go to kboo.fm and search for The Politics of Living episode 28. Rochelle Schmidt is back this month in a continuation of the conversation about toxic masculinity with students who work in media. Last month, we heard part one of that conversation. In today's segment, Rochelle and her colleagues explore what toxic masculinity looks like in everyday situations to college students. Here's Rochelle. I was trying to be somebody and then I also, you know, watching my brother grow up too, I I saw that, you know, he was definitely, you know, he was treated differently. I was allowed to talk way more about my emotions and feelings and I was allowed to cry and, you know, be quote unquote, you know, it was almost expected for me to be emotional, but like for my brother, it was expected that he had to like hold everything together and he had to, you know, my dad went overseas for a bit, so my brother was expected to be like the man, and I use them, like, quote, you know, the man in the house. So I just feel like there's this, you know, having this this term now really kind of helps 
combat against it. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you talked about that because, you know, I think that uh, a lot of men growing up, we recognize this sort of feeling that we have to be men and we have to be strong mm-hmm. and we have to accentuate all of our masculine qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't, we kind of fail to be men. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those things that you just sort of like live with. Like mm-hmm. you don't think of anything outside of that quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like definitely for me at least, um, I've had I've had countless conversations about this, but like middle school specifically for me was such a toxic time in terms of like trying to fit into a mold because at that at that point in time you're it's one you're you're going into yourself you're maturing you're going through puberty and all that and you have you you had kind of had this this idea this mold of who you're supposed to be how you're supposed to act who you're supposed to talk to uh, you gotta you gotta you gotta mac on girls you gotta you gotta lift weights and stuff right <laughs> <laughs> and you know that's what I was doing in middle school. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mac on girls. Hey, check out my Monster Energy t-shirt. <laughs> my Minecraft video instead, you know what I, mean? I got my first pimple the other day. <laughs> yeah, you know, get made fun of for voice cracks and stuff. Oh, yeah. But I think for, for me, at least, in, in kind of what, I, what I've picked up and, like, who I've canvassed, I feel like those, those early years are definitely, like, a very strong incubating point for toxic masculinity because it's everyone's growing into their self at that point it's something that's so prevalent and then it's just it's kind of an echo chamber of you must be this and so it creates this very certain parts of you get pushed away to the back and they become sheltered and what comes out instead is i think both a reaction to kind of hiding that and also something much worse you make a really interesting point too when talking about men feeling as though they have to repress their emotions that middle school era that kai is talking about i feel like that's kind of that pivot point between as a child like if a boy falls and scrapes his knee it's okay if he cries and mom kisses it or whatever but you hit that middle school age suddenly it's not okay anymore mm-hmm. i don't know why that line is drawn because i know if a woman falls and scrapes her knee mom may not kiss mm-hmm. it anymore but it's okay if she cries because yeah. it hurt i don't know where this notion came from but at the same time, it still is prevalent and exists in our society. And granted, I do recognize that there is something like, there's something positive about, you know, scraping your knee and not crying about it in the sense that you learn to take something that's unpleasant and, and recognize it, but then deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's when it, it, it's the shame that's associated with right. that, I think, is mm-hmm. the, the real problem. Right. The, the cultural shame mm-hmm. that comes from men crying. And it sort of is instilled in you where it becomes very binary. It's like, if I cry, I'm a wussy. If mm-hmm. I don't cry, I'm a man, mm-hmm. you know. You kind of mentioned with growing up, like, you know, we made the joke about, like, you know, macking and kissing the girls and whatnot. (laughs) But, like, I felt like, you know, growing up for me in middle school, that was such a pivotal age because I don't know how y'all were taught about your bodies, but, like, the way that we were taught about (laughs) our... My PE teacher took us... (laughs) Like, I just remember that we you had this... Gonorrhea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, like, I just remember, you know, we were pretty much told, you know, don't don't have sex. Like, mm-hmm. be abstinence. Yeah. Don't... If you if you do that, like, it better be with the person you marry. Like, you yeah. know, all these very... Like, for us, it was very, like... Our, our virginity was, like, meant to be, like, a flower. Uh-huh. I always mm-hmm. hated that because you're, like... Every time you sleep with someone, they take a pedal. And every, yeah, like one of our teachers told us one time in class, they're like, you know, every time you have sex with someone, they take a pedal and they take and take and eventually you're not going to have any pedals to give. And it's like, whoa, this is really like, meanwhile, then all my, like, I'm hearing all my guy friends are just like, yeah, dude, I totally like, you know. Yeah, every time you sleep with someone, you get a chest hair. Yeah, exactly. exactly. The toxic masculine, like, uh, opinion is that I need to get as many pedals as I can. You know, like, yeah. Which is funny. I think every woman can probably give a similar story. Like for mine, it was a piece of gum that if you chew and then share with somebody else and then you pass it around, eventually it has no flavor and it's all worn out. 
Mm-hmm. So it's amazing how many different metaphors, like everyone has some metaphor they were yeah. given as a female of your sexuality and how it's to be guarded and not shared. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet men are told they have to share it. I feel like there's this opposite thing that happens with men too where they feel like they're supposed to and somehow if they're not being active that mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. something unmasculine about them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like that's just as toxic. Mm-hmm. to tell them that, Absolutely. you know, if you're not being active, there's something wrong with you when that's really not true. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen that mess people up, mm-hmm. people even in college, right? They're like, oh, my God, I've never had sex before or something, right? And they're just totally, like, beating themselves up about it. Yeah, they're totally losing their mind about it. And it's, like, just it's so ingrained into their mindset and just, like, the way even the media expresses how college is, mm-hmm. right? You watch something like, I don't know, like Animal House or something, yeah. I don't know, you know? <laughs> That's the way college is, is it's like sex and drugs, and right. it's kind of not, depending, yeah. <laughs> at least for me, I don't know what that means. Like, you haven't had sex drugs and rock and roll every day? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think Nolan can attest to this, being the producer for Live Friday, hanging around musicians, where that whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll is very opposite of the truth. <laughs> um, <laughs> that the, uh, uh, I don't know, I think the, if you're all sex, drugs, and rock and roll, there's probably socially, like, <laughs> a bit off. I think it's interesting how these stereotypes come about, and yet when you actually have a conversation with someone, you realize that is not the truth. Mm-hmm. And how much of your college experience do you feel like has kind of encapsulated that, where you've talked with people and realized these things you're told in middle school and high school are the quote-unquote college experience? I think through the media's representation, join like a club or this and that, and you're going to have a great time. It's going to be super fun. You're going to drink every day. And- <laughs> You're going to meet the friends of your life and lose so much weight. And, you know, I, like, man, that that did not happen. I mean, I came here and I instantly was like, what? I'm barely going to sleep? Okay. Where's the cheapest coffee? Dating is very interesting in college because I feel like that's not really something that exists. It's just kind of more of like, hey, did you sleep with that person? (laughs) Yeah, I did. Oh, okay. Do you want to get lunch? Like, I, I kind of feel like that's how it goes. There's this weird stereotype around college that's, mm-hmm. like, we party and we, like, sleep with each other constantly. And it's just, like, that's that very animal house, yeah. like, honestly. And I feel like a lot of, not necessarily all of it, but a good portion of toxic masculinity comes from what we view as preparation for mm-hmm. the college life. It's like, all right, man, you got to you gotta buff up your girl skills, man. You get it all ripped and then, you know, join Delta Omega Togepi. Let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Right, because like that's like your first time like as an adult, mm-hmm. and these are th- yeah. seen as adult things. Mm-hmm. And adult males don't show emotion, <laughs> and they, you know, they have sex all the time. Uh-huh. Oh, no, 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 right? <laughs> that's like, all they do. Yeah, and they drink. I, mean, I will say one thing that I will admit that I like admired about college is I thought that when I um, would come in here that I would feel like a lot more lost about that dating situation. But I feel like I've gone, I've gotten way more of my identity back mm-hmm. and that I know also just befriending so many dudes here too. I realized it's like, like a lot of college movies makes it seem like any dude you meet, you're going to sleep with them or have some sort of romantic interest with them. And I have so many, so many friends that like, I don't like feel that way for them and they're just amazing. And I've learned so many experiences from them that they've empowered me to like fight back against that toxic masculinity you know talking with them and hearing their stories and like learning from them like I feel like that's one thing that I have combated but like for the guys in the room how many of you have developed female friendships like genuine just friendships no romantic sexual thing going on 
I mean, more than probably I did in high school, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, I was, I was busy making Minecraft animations in high school yeah, with my right. hoodie, so, you know? But, yeah, I think, I think genuinely it's like you get, you get here, and it's like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to date these people, and I'm supposed <laughs> to, you know, go to the, all these parties. Like, nobody here has any idea what the heck they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. And so once you, once you kind of acclimate to that, it's a lot more easygoing, I think. But the problem with that is you're still instilled with all of these toxic masculinity mindsets that are just built up over the past 18 years, and you have no idea what to do with them. Yeah, it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction. Like, you are so, like, conditioned oh. to be toxically masculine or something that you don't even notice you're doing it. Like, it'll be like, oh, it sucks being a white dude in America. <laughs> oh, that's tough. <laughs> Why don't I have a parade? It does lead to situations, though, where, like, I don't know if you guys experience this, but sometimes I'll come out of situations like, I have to, like, think. And I'm like, did I do something wrong? Or, like, are they mad at me? Like, I don't know. Like, you get kind of scared. Not that you're afraid of, like, being persecuted or whatever. Like, they're, mm -hmm. like the thought police are coming for me. But in a way of it's, like, I need to ensure that I don't regress. I don't know if that's right. the right oh, word. No, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I get what you mean entirely. Yeah. It's, like, I need, to, I need to ensure that my values here as, as a person I am in college right now aren't in line with how I perceive my college values would be in middle school, which is entirely, you know, you go. <laughs> and you, you get your thing, you do that, and you drink a lot. I That's love this like... character you keep doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's my frat bro character. Yeah. <laughs> Delta Omega Togepi, come join. <laughs> I, I do think that sort of the frat boy stereotype has now almost become the poster child for toxic masculinity. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do you think fraternities now kind of get a bad rap because of that? Yeah, there are fraternities. I, I don't know, for, for me and, like, my friends, like, if we see frat, like, you'll see frat people out on, like, the park blocks or whatever handing stuff out, and they hand you a flyer, and you're like, right on, brother. <laughs> I personally feel like frats kind of, like, harbor all that, like, mm -hmm. toxic toxicity because... It's just kind of like, you know, you meet people that, like, share these same ideas. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, you are going to keep empowering each other and just, like, you know, keep that constant cycle. Mm -hmm. And I personally, you know, anytime I see, like, that kind of, like, frat type, I usually go the other direction. <laughs> I usually am just, like, I'm like, I don't want to deal with this. Because, I mean, let's be honest, once alcohol is involved, like, mm -hmm. a lot of dangerous things can happen. When you talk about alcohol, I read an interesting quote where it said that alcohol is used as an excuse for anything a man does, but is used as the cause for anything that happens to a woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, women get blamed for what happens to them because they were drinking, whereas a guy, it's, well, you have to excuse it because he was drinking. Yeah. And either way, mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's not a positive way to look at the situation mm -hmm. on, on both genders, really. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't blame alcohol too much, though. I mean, right. alcohol has never turned anyone into a bad person. It's just like if you already have that, you know, tendency to, mm -hmm. to be, you know, or yeah. do bad things, right. like it's just going to it's bring that like, out yeah. on you. It's like yeah. if you're predisposed to that middle school mindset of, oh, I got to do these things, and then mm -hmm. you just get super drunk, then alcohol just brings out, it takes mm -hmm. down that layer that you lowers your inhibitions and mm -hmm. stuff like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and talking about male privilege and whatnot with toxic masculinity, knowing it's so conditioned, I'm sure you've had moments where you've been confronted with it, um, either something you personally have done or you've witnessed. How do you sort of rationalize that and deal with it, knowing this may be something that is sort of ingrained that you have to consciously fight about? One thing that's important to, like, overcome, especially as, like, a straight cishet dude, you have to begin to recognize it, first of all. Like, finding out what that means, especially if you come from a, a community or a, a place where those values are not only, like, just a part of the thing, but they're, they're encouraged, right? Like, you have to learn what those things are, and then you also have to learn 
if you harbor those things or if your friends harbor those things and like get yourself out of those situations and it, it can be like a privilege of being ignorant of the things right for like a dude that is like that whose life is quote unquote enriched by toxic masculine ideals or behaviors it won't change him like if he doesn't have a someone in his life hope helping him do that i think it all comes from the viewpoint of understanding and like kind of understanding the process of discrimination like you know polarization between different different groups of people and kind of how you treat somebody that you view as the other because a lot of my understanding of toxic masculinity came from being a person of color and originally being discriminated against in middle school on the bus and people would like you know make slant eyes and make buck teeth and mm. you know uh, speak english bad and stuff like that a lot of that understanding of um, of you know being treated as as marginalized in my personal case opened me up to oh there are absolutely other groups of people that experience this same thing but in different ways that I also couldn't possibly comprehend because I'm not that identity or combat toxic masculinity it takes a certain ability to kind of pause yourself pause your exertion of your identity on the environment and start questioning both your experience and like you know how people have treated you and questioning how people have treated and felt as that they've been treated in the past compared to your experience. Mm-hmm. Battling toxic masculinity in the workplace has always unfortunately been, you know, something that I've had to do. Uh, my first job, I was getting paid almost a dollar less than my male manager that was hired on way after me, had no experience or anything, and I was asked, you know, why did he have the pay raise? They couldn't even give me a straight answer, so it's been something I've always had to fight with, and I guess, like, my only advice to it to combat it really is just keep this kind of strength and head above it and just let your work speak for yourself it's it's very hard being a woman of color there's a lot of things that you know kind of as kai was mentioning i've had a lot of things you know being called racial slurs having people insult you know just also my gender identity you know being told a lot of these things was very hard and I personally think both the ideas of both masculinity and femininity, when we focus on both of them too strongly, you know, just like, you know, focusing on genders, like both male and female can get very detrimental, kind of like Nolan was saying, you know, it's a very spectrum how we are about how our identities are, how, you know, we act and who we are to ourselves. So battling that toxic masculinity is just keeping keeping yourself strong by just you know knowing that you're not alone there are a lot of stories and there are networks of people that will come to your care you know i've i found a lot of people through psu tv that i never thought i would ever have this support network ever in my life i mean some of these people in my room you know i know they have my back and i have their back so it's it's combating it you know not just alone but together to add on to that what you're saying i know i've also experienced similar things in the workplace and I actually had a manager say, well, you're supposed to speak up and negotiate your pay. And that goes contrary to everything you're taught as a female, that you're Mm -hmm. supposed to be demure and quiet and your work will speak for itself. Mm -hmm. And that in the workplace, it doesn't. Even if you are a hard worker, you have to advocate for yourself. And I would say that that is a positive masculine trait. And it's not necessarily masculine. It's just a trait that I feel like should be embodied by both Mm -hmm. genders. I think it's also important to acknowledge the positive masculine traits that don't necessarily have to be masculine, but they're traits that are good. Mm-hmm. I, like, I like that you mentioned Absolutely. that, too, because yeah. I, I worry sometimes when I when we bring up things like toxic masculinity mm-hmm. that the people, one of the qualities of people who are toxically masculine is that they are very insecure in the sense mm-hmm. that when they hear the term toxic masculinity, they think it's some sort of attack against mm-hmm. who they are, oh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I mean, there are traditionally masculine traits or what are perceived as traditionally masculine traits that are 
that are good, you know, like yeah. courage or, you know, paternal instincts or something like that, you know, that are, are very good. It's just the violence is really mm-hmm. people have a problem with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what should be um, restrained. And I think, I think there's like a, there's a dichotomy that needs to be made. It's important is that when people call out the dangers of toxic masculinity and that stuff, they're not calling out the dangers of being a dude. It's a slippery slope, but at the same time, it's kind of it's kind of something that needs to be addressed. That there are there are innate privileges and there are innate other things that come with being a man that will not necessarily negative, not intrinsically bad, can like because people step over each other. It's more of you know we're trying to make a common criticism more on the system and mm-hmm. how these ideas have Absolutely. just continued on and how. Rather than, you know, any time, yeah, there's been a lot of moments where I'm, like, I've had, you know, some people where they're, you know, we get head on, I'm just like, hold on, let's, like, let's calm down, let's come back together, let's, like, debate this out, and, like, usually, whenever that happens, like, you know, you get, like, pretty good results, but I think that was a really good point Nolan made, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to acknowledge, too, that masculinity doesn't necessarily have to be good or bad, it's to make it a positive thing, it's about being an individual, Mm -hmm. and regardless of gender, and it's just recognizing what traits are toxic mm-hmm. and recognizing that a lot of those traits tend to be ascribed to a traditional masculine role that can be really negative, like telling men they can't cry. That's not a good thing to assign to either gender, mm-hmm. to tell someone they can't cry. Mm-hmm. But it's a matter of, like you were saying earlier, Nolan, it's knowing which things you can deal with and when it's okay to cry, having a balance there. Mm-hmm. So just to wrap things up, what positive traits do you wish were emphasized more are there things that you would tell people to recognize when talking about toxic masculinity? One of the most important things is being open and honest about emotion. That really, I feel like a lot of the struggles or like confrontations that might have that you might have with someone who is using these sort of things, these behavioral traits, uh, is that like a lot of their emotion might be repressed or that they just don't know how to express those things. And so I just think being open and honest with your peers and with just anybody about emotion is really important having the ability or at least, you know, starting on that track to kind of pausing and trying to understand somebody else's perspective is very, very important. Like, you can be adamant about something, but at the same time kind of pause be like, hey, I recognize my perspective. This is where I'm coming from, and I want to know, not superficially, I want to know where you are coming from so I can take both of these viewpoints, combine them, and get a better understanding of what's going on as a full picture. I grew up with my brother and my dad, and they're, you know, they're, you know, my dad, he spent, like, over 30 years in the military. My brother, he's, you know, he's gone through a lot of hardships. And, you know, the reason why I, I personally feel like, you know, I'm so outspoken, I am strong, that I'm, like, you know, very, like, loud. Um, the reason why I, you know, I don't hesitate to call people out is because both my father and my brother, you know, it's not to say my mom didn't tell me to do that. Like, shout out to my mom. She's the best. It was my dad and both my brother that always told me, you know, no matter what, continue on, persevere, keep that, keep that strength going. You know, it was them that actually, you know, I learned, you know, that kind of, you know, getting up after scraping my knee and just walking, you know, from my dad. If we're going to, you know, combat toxic masculinity, you know, we need to, everybody, all parties, we need to, like, come together in a consensus and talking about it and not just attacking each other on these personal bases mm-hmm. or things like that. Like, actually, like, acknowledging that these are systematic issues that are in place and that we're college kids, you know, we mm-hmm. thankfully have the tools to combat against things like that. You know, not many people, we don't see that, you know, so it's, 
we're luckily at a point in a stage where we can start having these conversations. And they're painful conversations, but they're conversations that need to happen. Mm-hmm. I've already mentioned my uh, qualities that I think and are great masculine traits to have, you know, you know courage, or, or traditionally masculine traits to have would be courage and, you know, um, taking care of your family and things like that. I will say, like, one last thing, too. All my, like, sisters out there, there's a lot of days, a lot of experiences, a lot of offhand comments and things that will, like, come at you. It's hard to see that, you know, shining light, but just knowing that you survived that experience, regardless of how big it was or not, you survived it. Keep going. Drink water. Take a break. Take care of yourself. Self-care is the number one important thing, so... Leaving you off with that. (laughs) There you go. Well, thank all of you for coming in and having this conversation. That was Rochelle Schmidt. This was the second and final part of a conversation with college students about toxic masculinity. To hear the first part, go to kboo.fm and search for The Politics of Living, Episode 28. We are launching a new feature for The Politics of Living called Amplify This. It's a shout-out and spotlight of women doing extraordinary good things in the world. It is our intention to celebrate other women doing what they do to make this world a better place. To paraphrase former world champion soccer player Abby Wambach, it is time to champion each other by calling out each other's work in the world. This month, we amplify the work of Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand. In the wake of the devastating loss of life at the Christchurch Mosque, the Prime Minister stood with the community in mourning and then pursued making major changes, including the ban of military-style guns a few weeks after the horrific event. We admire her for her compassion, her leadership, and her humanity. To learn more about Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, see links on the show page. In this month's edition of Let's Stop for a Minute, M.L. Laurie further explores the idea of stable happiness, feeling alone, and self-esteem. Here's Let's Stop for a Minute with M.L. Laurie. So let's stop for a minute. Let's think about this. In my last segment, we talked about the two main cultural software programs, or learned ways of thinking, that interfere the most with our happiness and our positive self-esteem. We mostly talked about the false cultural message that a stable happiness can be found from people, things, accomplishments, and other things outside of ourselves because it's the number one way of thinking that most influences our sense of self, others, and the world. We talked about how looking to things outside of ourselves for happiness produces a sense of helplessness and at times hopelessness when we are not able to find the stable happiness we seek from these things. We ended with several reality-based ways of thinking that a stable sense of happiness can only be found from going inside of ourselves, that we are the only ones who can control what we think, feel, say, or do, and that we are not responsible for others and that they are not responsible for us. It is this type of thinking that allows us to realize our personal power and thereby increase our self-esteem and happiness. I left you with a question about the second cultural software program, or way of thinking, that of believing that we are alone in our human condition. The question was, how does believing we are alone in our human experiences or condition affect our self-esteem and happiness? So let's stop for a minute and think about this. Therapists are privileged 
really privileged to hear many people talk about their concerns and fears. When I was a new therapist, I already was aware that we humans all share many concerns and fears, but I was surprised to find that most people are unaware that others share many of these same concerns and fears. Over the years, it became apparent to me that most people are unaware of our shared condition because they keep their concerns and fears to themselves, like secrets. Many people think that if they share their concerns and fears, they will be vulnerable in some way, vulnerable to someone else who might use their concerns to hurt them in some way. It takes time for people to even trust their therapist enough to share these things. So most of our shared concerns and fears, like worrying about what others think about us and, and wanting people to like us, actually come from the belief or faulty thinking that we've talked about before that happiness can be found from things outside of ourselves. These types of concerns are about looking to others for happiness to feel good about ourselves. They're a product of a faulty software program or learned way of thinking that we are taught from birth that what people say or think about us is true. Think about it. A lot of people who've been around a newborn child would say that the newborn seems to have a kind of personality even then. There is the old argument about whether who we become is from our DNA or nature or whether we develop into who we are from our experiences. It's kind of like the old argument of nature versus nurture. I think both are probably a part of who we develop into, but no one could ever argue that we are born with certain ways of thinking or beliefs. These we learn after we are born. We believe what our parents tell us about ourselves when we are children. Why wouldn't we? These big, powerful people feed us, clothe us, teach us, and hopefully keep us safe. They are the ones that give us a place to rest our mind or body at the end of the day and, and hopefully nurture us. Since from birth we only have our hard drive program that makes our body work, and then we are taught many software programs or learn ways to think, first from our parents and siblings and family and then from others we encounter, why would it even occur to us to not believe what these powerful people tell us about ourselves in the world? In fact, our parents and our family often are only passing on to us what they were taught. Most people don't think to question such things. Why would we? So this faulty message that we are what others say we are is a core message that really affects our self-esteem and our attempts to find happiness. If we're fortunate, we have been told positive things about ourselves by our family. But no one can ever escape getting negative messages from others or their culture. Everyone has had the experience of wanting someone to like or love us, and they didn't. Often people believe this is because of something that they themselves did or are. This is not true. No one knows what is going on inside of us but us. Therefore, anyone looking from the outside is merely seeing something coming from their own software programs. Their judgments of us are totally biased by their software programs. Think about it. Think of all the times you have liked or not liked someone, but others liked them, or maybe they didn't too. If we are what people think we are, then everyone would always see the same thing. The fact that they don't is the powerful evidence that we are not what others say or think we are that each person sees things from their own perspective, which they have developed from their learned software programs. For example, someone told me once many years ago that I like rugged-looking kind of men. Now, I never thought about that. I thought, uh, okay. But 
from just a pure physical perspective of looking at a male, if I had to say who was more attractive, Mel Gibson or Brad Pitt, I would say Mel Gibson. Maybe that's because Mel Gibson looks more rugged. I don't know. I have no idea where that perspective came from. But somewhere along the line, it's something that I learned. And just by someone saying this to me, I was able to stop pay attention and notice that I do tend to be more attracted to men who look more rugged for whatever reason. Most people find Brad Pitt very attractive. I do not. Who's right? Who's wrong? So let's stop for a minute and think about this. We all, at some point in our lives, especially when we're teenagers, feel confused about who we are. One of the beauties of being a teenager, though, is taking the time to try on different things in an attempt to see what we like, what we're drawn to, or what we believe is important. Often conflict arises in families when the teenager no longer goes along with who the parents, family, or cultures say they are or should be or should do. But because the things we are taught are so ingrained in us from childhood— When we move into adulthood, people often find themselves going back to the values and beliefs they were taught when they were growing up, or the software programs our family or culture taught us. When this happens, sometimes people feel guilty or shame about choices they made as a teenager or a young adult that went against this kind of thinking. I feel really sad about this because, as I said before, the teenage years are an incredible time to step out of the family programming and start to think more for ourselves. This is a big reason why our teen years are so difficult, because we are thinking outside of the box, rocking the boat, so to say, and we get the message this is not okay. Think about it. Think about people's reactions when teenagers and and some adults way back when started to color their hair with bright colors or the punk movement or the horrible hippies of the 60s. (laughs) We can go on and on with the many examples where people were against the cultural norms and many people were uncomfortable with this. The bottom line is that we are not who our parents or anyone else says we are. If we have difficulty figuring out who we are, how on earth can someone else know who we are? They can't. They can't see inside of us, and therefore they have no reality to base what they believe or what they say we are, no reality to say who we are or aren't. The powerful reality is that we are all changing all the time. How many of us are exactly the same as we were even 10 years ago? So there are many different concerns and fears that we all share that are part of our human condition. We'll talk more about these in my following segments. When we talk about these concerns and fears, I often refer to them as secrets because, as I said before, most people keep these things to themselves. The important reason to bring these forward and talk about them openly is to help people move past this thinking that they are alone in their fears, concerns, and desires. By realizing we are not alone and bringing forth the truth that we are not what others think about us, that a stable happiness cannot be found outside of ourselves through others, our self-esteem will be increased. As we discussed in the last segment, our happiness increases as our self-esteem becomes more positive. When we realize that each person we encounter shares our human condition, which is made up of our concerns and fears and faulty software programs, it is very empowering because we realize the truth that everyone feels insecure at times, that everyone is a human being, and that we all share this condition called being human. So let's stop for a minute and think about all of this. Do you believe that everyone feels insecure at times? 
Do you believe that understanding the secrets of our human experience or condition can increase our self-esteem and thereby happiness? Let's stop for a minute and think about it. Think about it. I'm M.L. Lori. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Politics of Living. Thanks to our guests and our contributors, Brittany Viella, Brad Weber, Nolan Gold, Kai Pacifico Eng, Quincy D. Newell, Rochelle Schmid, M.L. Laurie, and Kristen Thiel. Also, thanks to our web manager and creator, Denise Kowalczyk. Visit kboo.fm and search for The Politics of Living, Episode 29, to find links about today's topics and guests. All feedback, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to tpoll at kboo.org. If you'd like to be a guest or a contributor on The Politics of Living, please email tpol at kboo.org. To hear previous episodes of this show or any of our KBU Public Affairs programming, just go to kboo.fm or listen on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to end this episode with a song by contributor Deborah Giannini entitled Ain't I a Woman? Thanks for listening to The Politics of Living. I'm Vicki Mazzone. The words to this song were set to music by Jack Hardy, but they're the words of Sojourner Truth. Born Isabella Baumfree into a Dutch-speaking slave community on a plantation in Ulster County, New York, about 90 miles north of New York City, she learned to read. She educated herself and eventually won her freedom, challenged a court regarding the sale of one of her sons and won. She joined the abolitionist cause and is known to us as a human rights activist. This speech, delivered extemporaneously at the Ohio Women's Rights Conference of 1851, came out of her own experience. Ain't I a woman, said Sojourner Truth? Ain't I a woman? Ain't I a woman, said Sojourner Truth? Ain't I a woman? I can bear the lash, I bore the lash. When none but Jesus could hear me, I bore 13 children, saw most of them sold, sold off into slavery. Ain't I a woman, said Sojourner Truth. Ain't I a woman? Ain't I a woman, said Sojourner Truth. Ain't I a woman? I can work as much, I can eat as much as any man can if I can get it. I have plowed and planted and gathered in the barns, and look at me, I'm a woman. Ain't I a woman, said Sojourner Truth. Ain't I a woman? Ain't I a woman, said Sojourner Truth? Ain't I a woman? Now if that first woman turned this world upside down, all of us women together can turn this world back right side up. And the men, they just better let us. That man over there said to shut my mouth. He said Christ was not a woman. 
I've got only one question for that man. Where did your Christ come from? He came from a woman. He came from a woman. He came from God and a woman. There weren't no man. Man had nothing to do with it. Ain't I a woman, said Sojourner True. Ain't I a woman? Ain't I a woman, said Sojourner Truth. Ain't I a woman?